This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Sarah Yocheved Rigler is a household name in so many communities around the world. She has written copiously biographies, books of spiritual odysseys. Her own incredible story has fascinated many, many people with her travels through Eastern spirituality and the like. She's done a tremendous amount of work with Jewish couples and mar- on marriages and just so many dimensions to her profile. Very excited to share her with you today. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know, the letter U on Twitter. Follow or subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Questions or comments to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with author, speaker, and remarkable human being, Sarah Yocheved Rigler. And just a really quick note. You will hear, for some reason, on this episode, my voice sounds a little bit strange, a little bit distorted, different than it usually does, maybe like a lower register. Not quite sure what happened there to the audio. It might have had something to do with the internet connection. I will not bore you with all the technical details, but I assure you, it still is me, and the episode content is worth listening to in anyone's voice. So bear with us, and we'll get it straightened out for next time. Here's the episode. We are here with... Sarah Yocheved Rigler, an acclaimed author, speaker, a uh, relationship coach, advisor, counselor. I'm not sure how to describe that part. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, someone with a fascinating life journey whose works uh, I've read articles and books many times over the years and uh, heard so much about and finally getting to meet. How are you? Thank God. Um, how am I doing? Well, that's an interesting question because... Um, I'm a person who's been working on herself for 50 years. And I usually wake up in the morning in a very happy mood. My life, Baruch Hashem, is, is very good. I'm a, I'm a successful author. And more importantly, I have a wonderful marriage and I have wonderful children and grandchildren. But I woke up this morning. It was very strange. I know you asked a simple question, how are you? And I'm giving you a You give me an honest answer. I like that. <laughs> I'm you an honest answer because that's the way I am. So I woke up this morning, I was strangely depressed and I had to work through it. So how am I now? I'm really, I'm, I'm great, but I had to do a process of getting there by, uh, you know, working through the process of if I'm only feeling happy because everything works in my life, then that's a very kind of vacuous happiness, right? So I found out that um, I got this report from Amazon, the sales of my ebook was very, very low, which I was shocked because I hear from people that everybody's talking about my new book. I've been here before when Souls of the Holocaust Return. Everybody's talking about it, I hear. You know, so... Everybody's so, talking, <laughs> nobody's buying, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was wondering. I thought it was everybody's talking, everybody's borrowing the book from their friends when nobody's buying the book. So I had to work through it, you know, and say to myself, so, you know, there are many people who are not successful. Thank God I had been very blessed. So how do people who are not successful in business, who are not successful in, uh, in getting married, who are not successful in maintaining their marriage, who are not successful in all kinds of things, you know, if, if I can't be happy, even when some aspect of my life isn't being successful at the moment, then, uh, then something's wrong. That's an excellent, that refreshingly honest reflection. So I appreciate that. Usually people, you know, just say, I'm doing well. <laughs> Thank God. So uh, <laughs> meanwhile, you said you've been working on yourself for 50 years. And I, I know that you have a really interesting uh, life journey. And I'd love to get into it in some detail, at least. I know we're not going to cover everything in an hour conversation. But tell us a little bit about where you're from. What was your original upbringing like? And what was sort of the family you were born into? Well, I was born into a very wonderful family in the Philadelphia area, the Jersey side of the Delaware River. Uh, my family was conservative. We were second-generation Americans. Uh, my father was you know, a wonderful man who did tremendous good for many people. He was a pharmacist who just helped everybody in the neighborhood of his drugstore. 
my mother was also like just really, really wonderful, wonderful, loving, giving, devoted people. They were conservative. We were conservative Jews, very devoted to the conservative synagogue that we went to. We had a kosher home, but we did not keep Shabbat. You were in Cherry Hill or where did you live exactly? Well, as I became, when I became a teenager, Cherry Hill became Cherry Hill. I was born in Camden and then we moved out to a different suburb than Cherry Hill. It was called Haddonfield. And not a whole lot of Jews, but I grew up there. I went to public school. I was very involved in my synagogue. I was president of our USY, the youth group there. I was on the national board of USY and um, went to Hebrew school two nights a week until I was 18 years old and went away to college. Very, very into it. I went away to college at Brandeis. The conservative Judaism that I was raised in, which I liked a lot. You know, my friends went to Hebrew school. I liked Hebrew school. I was one of the minority of kids who liked Hebrew school. But um, it didn't feed me spiritually. So when I was a junior at Brandeis, I went for my junior year of college and got credit for it to India. And there I found myself a guru who was both a... uh, I was a very, I was an intellectual, so I had to find a guru who was like very intellectual. Uh, Sri Gopinath Kaviraj was the past the retired principal of the Sanskrit college there in Banaras of Varanasi. And um, he was also a mystic, and he taught me really the first life changing uh, message that really formed who I am uh, subsequently. I had always, and I think this is true of most, you know, uh, American Jews, certainly in those days, where an education and intellectual achievement was very much emphasized, I had thought that I was a mind, you know, with a body. So um, I was very uh, into the mind and the pursuits of the mind. And especially in those days, we're talking the late 60s, it's when I went to college, you know, the idea was you get your degree, then you get your, your, your advanced degree, and then you get your, you know, your PhD, then you get like one thing and another. So that's, that was really the ceiling of my reality was uh, intellectual attainment and education. And I think that was very much true of my society, middle-class Jews growing up in America at that time. But Gopinath Kavirajji taught me that that wasn't my true identity, that my true identity is I am a soul who has a mind inside a body. My true identity is I'm a soul. And um, that was a game changer for me because I'm very, uh, <laughs> I'm very much an overachiever. So as long as the ceiling of my reality was the intellectual ceiling, then you know, that means just more and more advanced degrees. But when I understood that, the, that I'm a soul, then the ceiling became spiritual attainment then getting you know spiritual experience uh getting in touch with my soul developing my soul all those things became the replacement for my uh aspirations to get my phd in psychology which is what i had at that time i mean i'm curious that when you were growing up and had this fairly rich and involved jewish life and you went to brandeis of course which is basically a Jewish school, right? 50% Jewish. In those days, Brandeis was 80% Jewish. 80% it's Jewish. Now it's down Jewish. to 50 or so, but you know, it's, it's yes, a very yes. Jewish place. Did you yes. feel something was missing or is it only once you experienced something else, did you sort of retroactively look back and realize, oh, there was more than I had anticipated, but at the time, maybe you felt fulfilled. Very good question. Yes, I did feel fulfilled. And it never occurred to me because I didn't have any sense of the soul or a spiritual path. I certainly didn't know any Jews that regarded Judaism as a spiritual path or cared about, cared about a spiritual path. You were what you were, you know, be a good person and get your PhD. And what, it, it was the sixties. It was just the beginning of the West. The Beatles had gone to India, I think in 1966 or 67 and, and this was um, the very beginning of the West being turned on to Eastern spirituality. So I had professors at Brandeis who were into Eastern spirituality and spirituality in general. They were all Jewish, but they weren't into Jewish spirituality because they, I mean, they, they had a very actually uh, 
negative attitude toward Judaism. The, the great, great psychologist, Abraham Maslow, who was the founder of humanistic psychology, he was at Brandeis when I was at Brandeis. And I took a course with him. And he a very life-changing event was going to a symposium about a humanistic concept of God, where Professor Maslow really like put down the idea of two separate dishwashers in Newton. Newton is a Jewish suburb. Like, what's, what is what is religion? Have to, what does God have to do with two separate dishwashers in, in Newton? And the humanistic concept of God was very appealing because of the humanistic concept of God is there's no transcendent God. God is the, the, the best and most noblest part of the human being. Well, that sounded good. Nobody I knew at Brandeis, none of the professors that I knew, maybe somebody in the Judaic Studies Department, but otherwise the professors didn't, um, didn't believe in God, in, in the Jewish concept of God, like a transcendent God. And then when I got to India, and I was, again, enrolled in the university there, Benares Hindu University, I was shocked that all of my professors believed in God, you know, in India. And I was like, wait a second, what's, what's going on here? How come, you know, back at Brandeis, nobody, none of the professors believe in God. And here in India, including the professors in the science department, in the philosophy department, they all believed in God. And then years later, I figured it out. And I think this is a very important uh, idea that the God that the Jews conferred on the Western world is a God who gives commandments. You know, notoriously, don't commit adultery, <laughs> things like that. And, uh, and at the Enlightenment, when people like, uh, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau wanted to, you know, but the, the fathers of the Enlightenment, they needed to get rid of God because they did not want to be restricted by the commandments. Whereas in India, God does not give commandments. You can believe in God and do what you want. There are ideals there are principles like non-stealing, but it's very loose and very optional. God in India does not give commandments, and therefore it's possible to believe in God and do what you want. So God is much more popular in India. You're saying there's sort of an, an antinomian impulse that rests yes. at the heart of every person. Yes, and yes, 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 yes. Anything that conflicts with that is uh, something that people are quick to reject. Yes, yes. So when you went to India... Did you come back after your junior year? Did you go back to Brandeis? And, and what was that I didn't want to. I wanted to stay in India, but my father insisted I come back and finish my degree. We were a very close family, so I did what my father said. And I came back, finished my degree at Brandeis. And then the day after graduation, I joined an ashram in the woods of Massachusetts, a mile and a half from the ocean. It was actually America's oldest ashram, founded in 1909 by Swami Paramananda. And the guru was a genuine Indian woman who had come to America from India in 1926. She was uh, from Bengal. And it was a beautiful place, very, you know, with an authentic teacher, an authentic tradition. So the day after I graduated college, I joined that ashram and I stayed there for 15 years Wow! as a member of the ashram. And what is life there like? Is it monastic in the sense that we think about, you know, sort of subsistence, and, uh, you know, not eating much and quiet meditation most of the day? Well, you, there was meditation three times a day, but you couldn't meditate all day because there was work to be done. The ashram had a large organic vegetable garden. We fed ourselves, even though it was in Massachusetts, we ate all year long from uh, the vegetables in our organic garden. We froze them in the winter. There was flower gardens. There were retreating cott cottages for retreatants. There was the publishing department. We had investments. Uh, one of my guru's disciples was Chester Carlson, who was the inventor of xerography. He was also a patent lawyer. So he was one of the few inventors in those days who really made money from his invention of Xerox. And uh, the ashram had a lot of Xerox stock and money. And I was in charge of the investments. I mean, there was work to be done. We did, couldn't just meditate all day, but we did meditate three times a day. What was your favorite vegetable on the uh, ashram over there? <laughs> Do I remember? I don't remember. I mean, I kept kosher at the ashram, which... Did you really? Oh, I guess it was all vegetarian. No, no. They were, she was from Bengal. They were into chicken. They ate fish and chicken. I mean, I didn't keep kosher in the, in the strict way. I mean, I ate from their, uh, on their dishes, you know, but I, I didn't eat their chicken. Wow. I'm curious about your state of mind at that particular time. How were you synthesizing this sort of 
kind of traditional conservative background. And, and I would have imagined that you would have shed the vestiges of that, as we said, Nomian type of ritual commitment to find enlightenment in this more spiritualist setting. But it sounds like you harmonized them. What was your state of mind and, and why did you hold on to those vestiges? Was it just sort of out of familial loyalty or did you believe in something that propelled you to continue observing those laws? I think I liked tradition. In our family, tradition was something beautiful. My mother made beautiful uh, Shabbos meals and uh, Pesach seders. And there was something warm and it was kind of a gastronomic Judaism. But it was warm and, and there was no reason to reject it. But I didn't know it. I didn't know Torah. I didn't know the depth of Judaism. I didn't know anything. So when I look back now, that I was keeping a very, very superficial level of uh, observance. You know, I fasted on Yom Kippur, but my idea of, you know, of keeping Yom Kippur was to drive out to the forest and spend the day by myself contemplating and end up at a, you know, a synagogue nearby for uh, the Ne'ila service. It's, it's appalling to me now how little, as what was considered an educated conservative Jew, how little I really knew of what Judaism was really about. Did you maintain a strong connection with your family throughout this time? What was their reaction to all of this in a sort of unusual trajectory that you were taking, not, you know, not going into the professional world, not uh, becoming a partner in a, <laughs> a firm or opening your own business or whatever most good upper middle class Jews were doing at the time? My parents, they did not want me to become a business person. My father wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. My parents were not materialists. We didn't belong to a country club. Um, my father gave away more in tzedakah than, <laughs> than he probably made. Um, like, so making money was certainly never their goal for me or for themselves. But yes, they wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And um, they, they, of course, they didn't like the ashram because the most thing they wanted was for me to get married and have children. But the ashram was a very lovely place where it was encouraged to, to just to be the best person you know you could be, which I mean, was very rigorous. The, uh, the guru was what she called herself the ego beater. And I can tell you more about that later. But as far as my parents, so they came up once a year for a week and everybody treated them like royalty, like really wonderfully, very with great love and kindness, because that's what we were about. And, um, and I went home twice a year in Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. But they absolutely were, you know, very disappointed that I wasn't getting married and having children. Well, 15 years is a long time. And, uh, you know, I guess what sort of propelled you to stay on for so long? Did you have aspirations of any kind of life thereafter? Did you think about building a family eventually while you were there? This has to do with, which I'll tell you about subsequently, my uh, new book, I've been here before, When Souls of the Holocaust Return. I always had a feeling of having been someone who died in the Holocaust, who had lost children in the Holocaust. I didn't want children. I, I, I associate children with children are vulnerable little beings who die because that was from my experience from my past lifetime. And so the ashram was a good place not to have to, it made an ideal of not having children. But I didn't, I tell in the final chapter of my book, I've been here before, I tell my whole story and my struggle against my fear of having children. And, and many people, by the way, experience this. There, there are, of course, many, many thousands of people alive today, born after 1945, who are reincarnated souls in the Holocaust. Uh, Carol Bowman, who is a best-selling author, she wrote the book, Children's Past Lives, also born Jewish, but like didn't, you know, totally not educated in Judaism. She told how when she, when she got married, when she had her first child, her brother wanted to take her to the movies and leave the baby home with her husband, you know, like her, go out with her brother and have a little break from the baby. And she told how she held on to the door jams. She didn't want to leave the baby. She was so scared of leaving the baby because she had also died with her children in the Holocaust. I, I definitely want to dig a little bit more in that whole premise because it's, it's certainly uh, a radical statement and, and notion that, that requires some exploration. But it's interesting that, you know, ashram is a place where you're 
constantly looking to quiet your mind. And it sounds like you may have had really a restless soul and, and these anxieties about previous existences and so forth. Wouldn't, in, certain, in a certain way, being in a place that was so open to thinking and just acquiring the distractions of life, wouldn't that in a way heighten those anxieties and, and highlight them rather than clouding them out by you know being busy and distracted in building a career? No, I wasn't a restless soul and I didn't have anxieties. I'm a very, uh, a very courageous go-getter type person. You know, I just, that one thing I didn't want, I didn't want children. But barring that, like, you know, I'm a very gutsy person. The, I say that the ashram all those years, because it was a serious spiritual path. They said, my guru was a really past master. Whatever was in you, she would bring it out. We used to say she, she pushes you to the edge of the cliff and then pushes you one more time. So if you have jealousy in you, she would purposely bring it out, purposely engender jealousy between people. So you'd see, she would say, you, you have to boil the pot to bring the impurities to the surface, so you have to skim them off. In meditation also, all this stuff comes to the surface. My problem was anger. I was very anger prone. But so all those things like would come up, and then you have to work through them. And the ashram was a place where the interpersonal relationships between people who were all aspiring to live on a higher level, there was that life of very much spiritual aspiration. Wow. So I guess what eventually inspired you to leave this place? It sounds like the kind of place you could have stayed for a lifetime, but you did after a long 15 years. So what inspired me to leave was I had been there 14 and a half years and an Orthodox rabbi who happened to be the Hillel rabbi at Boston University, Rabbi Joseph. Oh, rabbi, rabbi Pollock. Do you know Rabbi Pollock? I don't know him personally, but he's a legendary figure in, you know, Jewish collegiate well, he, life. He deserves to be legendary. So he was invited to speak at the ashram. We were universalists, and we believed that all religions are different paths up the mountain. And all the paths meet at the same top of the mountain. So we had a Hindu woman living at the ashram, a woman from India, Shuma Chakravarti. And she was a, one of the teaching assistants of Elie Wiesel at Boston University. And through Elie Wiesel, she met Rabbi Pollock. So she invited, we invited different religious speakers all the time to speak at the ashram. For a Jewish speaker, we had this uh, Jewish renewal rabbi. But at this point, she invited Rabbi Joseph Pollock. And he went considerably out of his comfort zone to uh, come and speak at the ashram. And he spoke about love of God, even unto madness, quoting Maimonides. Now, again, I went to Hebrew school two nights a week till I was 18 years old. So I knew... I knew who Maimonides was. We had studied Maimonides. So I knew he was not a fringe figure, that he was, this was normative Judaism. But the words, love of God, that he gave his whole talk about, had never been spoken in my conservative synagogue. Those words were never spoken in my conservative synagogue. The word God was rarely spoken at my conservative synagogue. You know, we talked about anti-Semitism and Israel and all kinds of things like that, but God rarely and deliberately, God was avoided because, uh, because God was not popular in those circles in those years. So um, when he came and spoke about love of God and quoted Maimonides, I was like, what? How can this be Judaism? And I don't know about it because I know what Judaism is, I thought. I mean, that was the big surprise that I didn't. I didn't think love of God had anything to do with Judaism. I didn't think that even God had much to do with Judaism. Although when we prayed and all this, but like, we, you know, it wasn't a conversation. Prayer was certainly not a conversation with a living God at our conservative synagogue. And we were conservative. You know, we were like serious, you know. So Rabbi Pollock invited me afterwards to come to him for a Shabbat. And of course, I wasn't going to go to this Orthodox rabbi for a Shabbat because I knew he would try to get me out of the ashram. After a few months, he came in November. By February, I started to have doubts about the ashram because the goal of the ashram was enlightenment. We all know to be enlightened, first you have to be a mensch. An enlightened person is a person who has overcome anger, overcome lust, overcome dishonesty and all these things. And I saw after like 14 and a half years, and there were people there who had been there a very long time, that we hadn't overcome any of those things. And so it, uh, it very much bothered me. Are we going to attain enlightenment? Also, I read a book at that time by somebody who had practicing meditation for like 30 years. And she really never got to that place of enlightenment. You know, this was 
an American following the same path in uh, California. And uh, I started to wonder, if I, if, what am I doing? I'm never going to attain, attain enlightenment. So I, went to, so I went to Rabbi Pollock for Shabbat. And at the end of Shabbat, he invited me to come with him. He was giving a musical Malava Malka, Saturday night song fest, at a certain synagogue. Rabbi Nehemia Polin had a synagogue in Everett, which is like part of Boston. So we went, and he was very nice. He sang Shlomo Karbach songs and played the guitar, and it was very nice ruach. And afterwards, I picked up a brochure there in that synagogue. They were having a spiritual series. And the next person on the series was, was to be Rabbi David Din, who was coming up from Brooklyn, from Borough Park. And he was going to be speaking on Judaism as a yoga. And I thought, wow, I've got to hear that one. So that was like two weeks later, and I went. And Rabbi Din said the words that changed my life. He said, halacha, which I knew meant Jewish law. He said, halacha comes from the root word, lelechet, the word that means to go or to walk. He said, Judaism is a path. It takes you somewhere. It's a spiritual path that takes you somewhere. I was like, what? (laughs) You know, like I knew thousands of Jews growing up. And at Brandeis, I didn't know a single Jew who regarded Judaism as a spiritual path that takes you somewhere. Not one. I didn't know one. And then when I heard those words, what? Judaism is a spiritual path that takes you somewhere? And I was just amazed and also very impressed with Rabbi David Din, who was extremely brilliant. And I had written a book. It was a biography of Swami Paramananda, the founder of our ashram, my guru's guru. And my guru gave me $2,000 and two months to go anywhere in the world I wanted. Well, gosh, we got $10 a month, you know, so $2,000 was a lot of money. And two months to go anywhere in the world I wanted. This was her reward for writing the book. And um, I, decided, I decided to go to Borough Borough and just really relax and swim in the crystalline waters. And I went to the travel agency and got brochures about Borough Borough. And instead, ended up following Rabbi David did down to Borough Park. <laughs> wrong borough. <laughs> wrong borough. Well, it was the right borough because there I started learning what I call Jewish mysticism, but it was a genuine, authentic context. There was a rabbi named Rabbi Mayor Fund who was teaching uh, the Ramhal's book, Derech Hashem, The Way of God by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lusato. And I mean, like, this was real, this was authentic stuff. And it was Rabbi Fund who said to me, if you really want to learn Judaism, you have to go to Jerusalem. So I came to Jerusalem. And the first night I was here, I met the two people who would be the most influential in my life. I met the Rebbe of Amshanov, who became my Rebbe. And I met Rebbe Sin Heller, Rebbe Sin Sapor Heller, who became my teacher and mentor that first night. <laughs> and so I started going to Neve and learning stuff that just every day my mind was blown at the depths of what I was learning because I thought I knew what Judaism was. And I was like, are you kidding? This is so deep. This is so unbelievable. What is, what, what, how did I not know this? So at the end of the two months, um, it's a whole story. I tell about it again in the last chapter of my book, I've been here before. I came on a two-month ticket, and that was 36 years ago. I want to then fast forward a little bit and understand what you did with all that time. Now, obviously, you, you did eventually build a family, and you started to work in a variety of different contexts, writing, teaching. So where do you kind of go uh, from there? Well, a year and a half after I uh, came, I got married to this 39-year-old musician. I was 37 when I came to Israel. And uh, Rabbi David Aaron of the Israelite Center made a shidduch for me with a 39-year-old musician from California who was only here for a short visit. And Rabbi Aaron decided that this was the guy for me probably because we're both tall. And by the time we met, he was supposed to leave in eight days. He extended his ticket by five days, and we were engaged on the 11th day. So oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It could have turned out badly, but it didn't. <laughs> He's a wonderful, wonderful husband, and, uh, and I've been very blessed. And so uh, I was a full-time mother. I had my first child at 40, and I'm not going to say anything more about childbirth because that's really the, the surprise ending of the book. But... I was a full-time mother, and then I started writing for H.com, and then I had a very close relationship with a tzedekis, a holy woman, 
named Rebetzin Chayasar Kramer. She was what we call a hidden. And in, in Judaism, there's an idea that there are 36 hidden tzaddikim whose, in whose merit the world ex- exists. And she was a hidden tzaddikis, as was her husband, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Kramer. And I had a friend who said to me, you know, you, you, there are no books about women. Right? There are by so many biographies of great rabbis. There's no biographies about women, good ones. And she gave me the two <laughs> biographies that existed about women those, in those days. And uh, they were both really so poorly written and really painful to read. And so I thought, so I asked her if I could write about her. She said I could not write about her using her name, but I could write about her not using her real name. And I started doing research and uh, worked on it for a number of years and interviewed her and interviewed everybody. She, she was very, very amazing. That book is called Holy Woman. She died in 2005 when the book was still in manuscript form. And I asked Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz if I had to, once she was gone, respect her wish to be anonymous. And he said, no, I did not. Once a person dies, all bets are off as far as anonymity. So I could use her real name. And the book came out in 2006 and became an immediate bestseller. I mean, literally, two weeks after the book came out, the publisher Art Scroll called me and said, uh, we're going into a second printing. Do you know, do you have any changes? What? I mean, here I was an unknown author writing about an unknown Sudeikis. And again, because she behind, she, she had no children. She was in Auschwitz and she was experimented on by Dr. Mengel. She had no children, although she took care of many multiply handicapped children. So from behind the scenes, she was pushing that book. It went into nine printings in the first year <laughs> and has been translated into four languages. So that book made me an immediate, uh, you know, a successful author. <laughs> and then I started going on, on tours, speaking tours. And the book is not a straight biography. It's a book about how... How did she get there? How did she become so great? And how, do, how does each of us become so great? You know, we can each, on our own level, we all face the kind of choices she faced. We don't face them on the, the choices, not on the level of her choices, but on our own level, we each face similar choices between being a giver and being a taker, for example. And, and what do we do? So the book is very much constructed. There's a device I use in the book of a, like a fork in the road sign, like you see on the road. And whenever she had a choice to make, I, there's this fork in the road sign and the, the font of the book changes and it talks about the choice she faced and how each of us face a similar choice in our own lives. And I give illustrations, practical illustrations for my own life, you know, whatever's going on in my own life at that time. And so that's why the book became a, uh, such a bestseller because people want to grow. People want to grow spiritually. They have, they, have an inner sense that that is really their mission in life to go spiritually, and which is the mission of life. We are each a soul, and our mission is to uh, rectify ourselves. I hesitate to use the word tikkun because the word tikkun in the popular Jewish world has become associated with tikkun olam, which means, as a reform rabbi told me, when I was asking about uh, what title I should use for, I have a forthcoming. Uh, on International Holocaust Day, January 27th, I'm putting together a Zoom event on January 27th. There's going to be a, a, a Zoom event with the um, ambassador to the United Nations from Hungary. We'll give greetings. And we have already recorded greeting from Lily Ebert, who wrote a best-selling book, Lily's Promise. She became a social media sensation a couple of weeks ago with her 98th birthday. And she's given us a very moving message. Recorded. I'm not asking her at 98 to get up in the middle of the night in England. It's going to be middle of the night in Israel, but it's going to be 8 o'clock in New York and 5 o'clock in, on the West Coast. So we had this Zoom event. I was like, what to call it? I wanted to call it about the, like, the soul's mission being tikkun, because there's such a thing as Holocaust fatigue. People don't want to hear any more dark, harrowing, tragic stories of the Holocaust. They're tired of it. And this phenomenon of Holocaust fatigue very much threatens Holocaust education in our time. But people are always open to hearing inspiring stories. And there are certainly so many survivors and also non-survivors who have inspiring stories, you know, of real spiritual heroism. So Lily Ebert is one of them. Edith Eager, whose best-selling book, The Choice, is another one. So I'm going to talk about them, and I'm also going to talk about 
this phenomenon that I discovered. I did research for eight years, and and over 450 people answered my online survey. Over 100 people sent me emails. These are people born after 1945 who have recurring dreams, phobias, panic attacks, or flashbacks of the Holocaust. And um, their stories, I mean, I spent the first two-thirds of the book convincing people that these are, in fact, reincarnated souls of the Holocaust. There's no other rational explanation for why a four- or five-year-old child growing up in a home there was no discussion of the Holocaust. And four- and five-year-old children you know, born, let's say, in the late 40s, early 50s, they didn't see, there were no movies or books about the Holocaust in those days. And certainly you wouldn't show your young child such movies or books. But these children were having very, very specific Holocaust dreams, recurring dreams. And also people born into non-Jewish families who like had no connection to the Holocaust. Where you could say, okay, in Jewish families, somewhere, somehow they're talking sometimes about the Holocaust. You know, there was a, a woman in the book born in uh, New Zealand to two Christian evangelical pastors. Both her mother and her father were pastors. They had a church there. And this child at the age of four or five would say things like, we don't eat bacon. We don't eat ham. The real day of rest is Saturday, not Sunday. And it was like, what? You know, we do eat bacon. We do eat ham. We do celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. So where did this child get that from? And it, at the age of nine, she, uh, I mean, it turns out to long story again, the story's in the book. I mean, she probably perished in the death camps, Sobibor, and was reborn into this, uh, into New Zealand, you know, place she never, she never knew a Jew. Her name is, it was, uh, Mireille and Millar. She never knew a Jew until she got on the plane at the age of 17 and came to Israel. She subsequently converted to Judaism. And uh, she now lives in Beersheba. You know, these are Jewish souls, and there are so many of them, who born to non-Jewish families. And again, I discuss in the book the reason why that would happen. I mean, obviously, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to understand that a, a Jew being tortured in the Holocaust because they're a Jew might not want to be reborn as a Jew. They might want to be reborn as a non-Jew and then not have to go through that again. And then they're born as non-Jews, and then they... Uh, have to go through the very arduous process of converting back to Judaism because they are Jewish souls. I think a lot of people who would hear about this whole notion of uh, reincarnation and certainly the specific pinpointing of a person's prior existences, you know, would be shocked that that may have grounding in, in Jewish sources and, and it may be the matter of debate within, you know, Jewish sources, but not really. It's it's not. I have to say, Ari. Okay. The, the, the publisher made me put the first half of the second chapter to prove exactly what you're saying. All the Jewish sources about reincarnation. The only great sage who was against came out against reincarnation was um the, was Rav Sadia Gon, who lived in the eighth century. And I explained there, according to a contemporary Kabbalist, Rav Yitzhak Ginsburg. The word he uses for reincarnation is, is a word that is not... The word for reincarnation in Judaism is Gilgul Nishamot. Like, Gilgul is a circle. The, like, the revolution of souls. Rabbi Sajigon did not use that word. He used a word that means ha'ataka, which means, really means transmigration of souls. It's a different concept. The Jewish concept of reincarnation is not like the... Eastern concept, which I'm very qualified to talk, you know. The Eastern concept of reincarnation is that a soul entity comes down into a body, makes karma, dies, you know, this body dies, the soul goes up, comes down again into a different body where it has to pay its karma. This is one soul entity coming down into one body after another. The Jewish concept is much more complex. There are sparks of souls. There are sparks of souls, all the rectified parts of the soul. There are many, many different parts of the soul. But the rectified parts of the soul do not come down again. Only the unrectified parts of the soul come down. And um, whatever Orthodox Judaism you adhere to in this lifetime, if you're an Orthodox Jew, and there are Orthodox Jewish men who will say, I don't, I don't believe in reincarnation. You know, I, you, I never hear that from women, only from men, by the way. Women, of course, are more spiritual. The point is, there are the two great streams of Orthodox Judaism today. One is Hasidus, 
So that came from the Baal Shem Tov. Well, the reincarnation, Gilgul Neshamot, is absolutely an accepted part of Hasidism. The Baal Shem Tov told many, many stories about why this baby died as a, as a baby because in its past lifetime, da 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 it just needed to come back to rectify this one thing, blah, 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 blah. The other stream of Orthodox Judaism is traced to uh, Lithuanian Judaism, the Vilna Gaon. And the Vilna Gaon also <laughs> understood Gilgun Shamot as a given. So when, you know, Orthodox Jews say, oh, I don't know by, you know, reincarnation, I think that they're evincing a great deal of ignorance because they really have not looked at the sources. Like, it's just maybe those with more rationalist tendencies and Maimonidean. Yes, yes rationalist tendencies, where it's very hard for them to accept. But everybody in the Orthodox world accepts the Ramhal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who wrote very clearly in Derech Hashem, The Way of God. He wrote, and I'll, and I'll read it to you because it's very important to hear it. God arranged matters so that man's chances of achieving ultimate salvation should be maximized. A single soul can be reincarnated a number of times in different bodies. And in this manner, it can rectify the damage done in previous incarnations. Similarly, it can also achieve perfection that was not attained in its previous incarnations. The idea is, and it's it's a really important idea, it's probably the most important idea, each one of us is a soul who is here for its perfection. And because God is merciful, he gives us many chances to get it right. And this should make sense to everybody. Because how many people die really having perfected all their limitations? Even very good people. You know, Hashem is good. He gives another chance. So I want to understand briefly just what inspired you finally to write this book it seems like it's a real passion of yours. And again, you had this early premonition that you yourself had come from some Holocaust trauma and a previous life. Why now did you finally put this to paper and what, what inspired that process? Well, because this was my, of course, deep, dark secret that I didn't talk about because I didn't want to be considered weird. As I say, I'm an intellectual person. I didn't want people thinking I'm weird. Although I guess, you know, the trajectory of my life has been such that people might think I'm weird. But, uh, I don't know what's considered more weird by people, depends who you talk to, spending 15 years in an ashram or becoming an Orthodox Jew. What's, what's weirder? I, I had not just had a premonition, I had evidence. When I was 14 years old, I had a dream in fluent German. When I was coming back from India in 1969, I wouldn't let the airline route me through. I needed a stopover between Tel Aviv and Stockholm. And I would I absolutely refused to go to Germany. They said, no, just as... Very convenient to our layover in Frankfurt. No way I would not go to Germany. So I let them route me through uh, Vienna. And I had a seven-hour layover. And of course, it was stupid because Hitler is from Austria. So uh, like I, didn't, I just didn't associate Austria with my associations of Germany. Anyway, while I was on the seven-hour layover, I went into Vienna walking around in a residential neighborhood, just looking at the anthropological factors of the, you know, the neighborhood, I had a, uh, I had a flashback. So it wasn't just a premonition. It was like those two things really convinced me that I had to have been alive in those days, but I wouldn't have talked about it. And then, oh, maybe 10 years ago, I was speaking with a friend here in my living room, my friend Hannah Sarazeller, and I confided in her. You know, I think I was, you know, I think I died in the Holocaust. And she looked at me and she wide-eyed and she said, uh, so did I. And she started to tell me how she was also a second generation American child growing up in Brooklyn. Her parents did never discuss the Holocaust, but when she was four years old or even younger, her mother would put her to bed and she would look into at her pillow and she would see a scene. And this happened like almost every night. She'd see a scene where she was in the back of a truck with many other women, and the women were all collapsing to the floor. And then she saw herself fly out of the truck and say, now I'm free. And it would be two decades before she would learn that the Nazis' first experiments in mass murder was to put people on the back of a truck and pipe the carbon monoxide gas from the engine into the back of the truck to kill the people. She had no way to know this as a child, but that was the clearly the scene that she saw nightly as a child. So uh, when I realized that, you know, that my experience was also her experience, I started asking 
other friends. And it turned out every single one of my friends had a different, unique story of why they felt they had perished in the Holocaust. And nobody would talk about it. So I started, you know, like asking more and more people. And then I became the go-to person, you know, when people would tell me. And uh, I started collecting more and more stories. I put an article about it up on H.com. The editor at H.com refused to let me write about it for years. And then Scientific American had an article about reincarnation. And, and I said to him, well, you know, you're being more you know, religious than the Pope. You know, the Scientific American can talk about reincarnation, really saying that the scientific proof for reincarnation seems to be as valid as the proof for any of the material sciences. So then he let me post an article about reincarnation, and I was just flooded with emails from other people like, yeah, you know, me too. But even so, even when people gave me their stories, as I said, I have 550 people who shared their stories with me. Most people would not let me use their real name because people don't want to be deemed weird. So, uh, but it's, so it's a very massive phenomenon, although it's very hush-hush. And so my book came out. <laughs> and like, a, you know, people are coming out of the closet. I want to just shift gears and, and you... I know do quite a bit of work with couples or with helping women at least optimize themselves within relationships and and so forth. Where did that come from? Is that part of your psychology background? And is that something that is more recent? Well, I guess because, yes, I I must have to do something with my psychology background. But what happened was this book came out, big bestseller, Laura Doyle, The Surrendered Wife. Yes. And a very respected rabbit sin said that she thought I should write a Jewish version of the book. And I went to my publisher, Art Scroll, and they said, you're not qualified to write about marriage. You're not a Robinson, you're not a marriage counselor. Start giving workshops. People will tell you their stories. And, uh, and then you'll have what to write a book about. So I started giving workshops. My husband called it my traveling roadshow. I have like life-size uh, pictures and, and, um, and scripts where one person, I, I, only, I only teach women about this. And uh, so it was for married women to improve their marriages. And I mean, because my specialty, I had written a book with Rebbe Sinsapur Heller called Battle Plans, How to Fight the Yetzirah. So a gift that I am blessed with is turning abstract concepts into battle plans, like actual methods. So how do you take this, this very elevated concept and turn it into a method you can use in your life? And I was also in a Musarvad for um, 16 years with Rabbi Leib Kellerman, who's a student of Rav Shlomo Waldbe. So Musser is a, is, a, is a system, the Jewish system of working on yourself and changing yourself, improving yourself. So I had the Musser tools and concepts, and I used them to make a Jewish version, which went far, far beyond the surrendered wife. I mean, just like really very different than the surrendered wife. Although the basic concept was Laura Doyle's wonderful revolutionary concept was that a woman can improve her marriage by her efforts alone. Most people think it has to be 50, 50, you know, I'll go together to the marriage counselor and uh, together we'll work on it. And if my husband doesn't work on it, then the marriage can't improve. But most marriage counselors will tell you that that's not true. That even if one member of the couple comes and really works on the marriage, the marriage will improve. The point is that I understood that the purpose of life is to work on yourself. This process of tikkun, that's me that I mentioned before. And marriage is a wonderful laboratory for working on yourself. And so I started to give this workshop and then all over the world, I gave it on five continents to like a couple thousand women. And then Jewish workshops asked me to give a weekly webinar so I can sit in my home here in the old city of Jerusalem inside the walls of the Old Sea of Jerusalem. And I give this weekly marriage webinar for women who want to work on themselves spiritually through their marriages. But what happens, and I've been doing it for about eight years now, the women, their marriages become very good. <laughs> Even though, you know, they, they might, like, it's, they're not, not working on it as a couple. They're working on it by themselves. But when the woman changes, we have, one of our mottos is the only person you can change is yourself. But when you change yourself, you change your marriage. And that we have seen it in hundreds and hundreds of cases. So anybody who's interested in only for only for married Jewish women, and it's on my website, 
sarahrigler.com, S-A-R-A-R-I-G-L-E-R. Right there on the homepage of my website, it talks about this marriage webinar and people can click on more information and click through and, and join. But only for women who are really interested in working on themselves, not just women who want to complain about their husbands. Finally, you always seem to have some kind of projects cooking, so many books that have been coming out. And we didn't even talk about the Henny Machlis book, which is another one that you wrote. So much that you've done in the Jewish world and amazing, inspiring writing. Any projects on the burners right now that we can uh, maybe uh, tease here? Right now, what I'm working on is promoting, I've been here before when Souls of the Holocaust return, and this Zoom event on International Holocaust Day, January 27th, because when push comes to shove, the bottom line is you have to know that you are a soul, an immortal soul that outlives the body, and the purpose of life is tikkun, is rectification of yourself. can't rectify the world until you rectify yourself. So this is something that I feel is so important. What I'm working on, my books have been bestsellers in the Orthodox world, but I really want to break out to the Reformed, conservative and non-affiliated Jewish world because I feel like there are gems about the soul. I was talking to, you know, and wanting to like come again, I mentioned, come, what, what should be the title for this Holocaust Day event? And um, so I asked, I have a cousin very strong conservative Jew. He married a woman 26 years ago. She was raised reformed, but she's been conservative for 26 years, very affiliated. And I wrote to her about like, you know, this title or that title or that title. She wrote back to me. She said, um, I spoke to my friends and none of us knew that Jews believe in the soul or an afterlife. <laughs> so what? People we're talking about ed college-educated, intelligent people who are very affiliated, strongly affiliated Jews, don't know that Jews believe in a soul and an afterlife. So my mission right now is to get the word out there. And I thank you, Ari, for giving me the opportunity to address many Jews who might not know <laughs> that Jews believe in a soul and an afterlife. And I hope that they will read the book because whether or not the book convinces you about reincarnation, I think the book will convince the reader that there is a, another dimension to life, and that's the spiritual dimension, and that we are here for a purpose. I mean, we always, you know, what's the purpose of life we used to discuss when we were in college? Well, and then you, you grow up and you stop discussing what's the purpose of life, but you have to have the purpose of life clearly in front of you at all times. And the purpose of life is tikkun, is rectification of yourself which is a process that you have to consciously work on. And Judaism provides means for doing that. My Kesher Wife Club, the marriage club, is one way. But there are many ways to work on yourself and to try to achieve this greater perfection, which is the purpose of life. Sarah Yochevin Riggler, author, speaker, spiritual seeker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You will. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.